Amen. Please be seated. Please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2, where you have the insert with the text there printed for you. We have spent the last three weeks walking through the first chapter of Luke. Now we come to the second chapter. I am guessing these verses, at least in America, may be the most famous scripture verses or the most famous scripture passage known to Americans. Uh, Even those who are not familiar with the Bible on the norm will recall these words from Linus. Uh, You remember Charlie Brown was upset that he could not understand the meaning of Christmas, and Linus stepped forward and said, sure, Charlie Brown, I can tell you what Christmas is all about. And there were in the same country shepherds. And of course, he was reading the King James, and he started at verse 8. We will start at verse 1 in the ESV. This is God's holy word. Please follow as I read Luke 2, starting at verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region... There were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. And at the end of eight days... When he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, the story of Christ's birth, it is the beginning of the fulfillment of the substance of the gospel, the announcement of the gospel. Lord, you did this work of fulfillment over the course of centuries and time and space. And when fullness had come, Lord Jesus, you took upon yourself our nature, yet without sin, being conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin, 
you came to save us from our sins. Lord, as we open this familiar passage once again, please send your spirit to enlighten our minds and stir our hearts to a deeper love and devotion to you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The verse, or the chapter starts in verse 1, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Those of you who went on the Reformation trip, it's hard to remember all we learned. Uh, we had, a, had this Italian lady, this really strong Italian lady, lead us through Rome. And she, you would have thought that the Roman Empire was in full swing still, the way she described everything that was there. I mean, she saw it as the eternal city. And I remember her pointing out several different, um, there were pictures, there were statutes, and there was a bust, a full bust of Caesar Augustus. And this text tells us, in those days, that's when Caesar Augustus was the emperor of Rome, um, largely considered the greatest emperor of Rome, which is a lot when you consider how long that empire lasted. He reigned between 27 B.C. and 14 A.D. Over 40 years, he was the emperor. He was really the first emperor of, of a true empire. Um, you may remember from your history a little bit about him. He was born Octavius. And he was a great military power early in his life. Julius Caesar loved him as his own son. After Julius Caesar was assassinated, he was named son of Caesar in Caesar's will. And at that time, there was a difficulty in uh, gathering the powers together for the kingdom or the empire after Julius Caesar was assassinated. And so there was a need to fight off those forces that were trying to break down the empire. And so it was divided by under three different generals who were rulers, a triumvirate. And one of them was none other than Octavius, who would become Caesar Augustus. Octavius had one-third, Mark Antony had one-third, and Marcus Lepidus had the other. Over time, though, Octavius became the more powerful of the three and eventually assumed full power and called it his empire. Now, of course, he still gave the facade of a republic but he was the emperor, and he was named Caesar Augustus. And he ushered in 40 years Pax Romana, that time of peace in the Roman Empire. It was in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. He wanted to have a decree or a registration to know how many people were now part of the empire with its new borders, how many people could be taxed, and then also how many fighting men there would be. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. You know, in those days, it was all about Caesar. It was all about the empire. That's really what the world would have said. He was recognized as this mighty, godlike emperor. In fact, the the Greek religions, now synthesized with the Roman religions, taught that the emperor was a god himself. And he took it on. He believed the hype about himself. He believed it was part of his role to becoming a god as he served as emperor. All the world at this time, in these days, is about that person in that kingdom, in that empire. One of the imprints that you can find in the bottom of a picture of Augustus Caesar says the following, Divine Augustus Caesar, Divine Augustus Caesar, Son of God, Imperator of land and sea, the benefactor and savior of the whole world. That's how he viewed himself. That's how Rome looked at him. And it was in those days that Caesar Augustus issued this decree that people would be registered. Verse 3, 
and all went to be registered, each to his own town. What irony there is here that we are reading the greatest story ever told, the beginning of the fulfillment of the full gospel in Jesus' coming. And yet there's a person who thinks he's God issuing the decree. He thinks he's running everything. And we have this man who thinks he's God being used by the true and living God to bring the Son of God. It says in our catechism, and it's worth remembering, capturing the Bible's teaching on God, are there more gods than one? There is but one only living and true God. How many persons are there in the Godhead? There are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost. And these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. What are the decrees of God? The decrees of God are his eternal purpose, according to the counsel of his will, whereby, for his own glory, he hath foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree. He thought he was God. It's good to pause just briefly because I think people get anxious about world rulers. We give them too much power in our own minds. J.C. Ryle says something wonderful that helps us. Little did the haughty Roman emperor and his officer Quirinius think that they were only instruments in the hands of God and were only carrying out the eternal purposes of the king of kings. Little did they think that they were helping to lay the foundation of a kingdom before which the empires of this world would all go down one day and Roman idolatry pass away. And then Ryle says something wonderfully uh, pastoral to us. The heart of a believer should take comfort in the recollection of God's providential government of the world. He says that a true Christian should never be greatly moved or disturbed by the conduct of the rulers of the earth. He should see with the eye of faith a divine hand overruling all that they do to the praise of the glory of God. He should regard every king and potentate, an Augustus, a Quirinius, a Darius, a Cyrus, a Sennacherib, as a creature who with all his power can do nothing but what God allows, nor anything which is not carrying out God's will. And when the rulers of this world set themselves against the Lord, the believer should take comfort in the words of Solomon from Ecclesiastes. There is one higher than they. And so, verse 4. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. There was probably about a month window for them to register. They had to get there quickly as she was pregnant. We already know where Mary and Joseph were from in Nazareth, at least where they were living. We also know that Mary was from David's lineage, and now we know that Joseph's is too. And now we see them go to Bethlehem to be registered. Seems like a little thing, but it's a huge fulfillment of a 700-year-old prophecy. Micah, the prophet, ministered at the same time as Isaiah. We're not sure if they knew each other, but they were contemporaries. It says in Micah chapter 5, 700 years before this event, but to you, O Bethlehem Ephratah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. You're not even noticed. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. 700 years before now. Who coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time 
when she who is in labor has given birth, then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. There it is in verse 4, as they go to the city of David called Bethlehem. Now, verse 6. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. The place was packed. People were there for registration. It was not a place big enough to hold many guests. But imagine for a moment, because so much has been said about that, imagine for a moment this feature. We have just studied this and had the angels give those, inst- those great announcements to Elizabeth, to Zechariah, to Mary. Mary was told... Greetings, O highly favored one. Now, here she is giving birth to a baby and having to place that baby in a manger, in a, in a hewn-out cave or in a, a barn-like structure for all we know. Imagine what she would have thought, but the angel told me I was the highly favored one and my son was going to be this important person. Now, there's nothing in this text that shows that she questioned that or wondered that, but we certainly might wonder But remember the way the text talks about something that God promises. It talks about it as though it's happened. Um, You remember when Zechariah, upon knowledge of his son John's birth, gave praise to God for the, the liberation he would bring his people, yet it had not come yet. He was so sure. It was the prophetic sure, the prophetic true, knowing that what God promises, he will deliver, and I can rejoice as though it has happened. There's a sense in which I would gather Mary knows that this message of favor and grace to her will be realized no matter how the birth happens. Here Jesus has come. The gospel fulfillment had begun. This isn't the first announcement of the gospel. The first announcement of the gospel happened in Genesis chapter 3, and it's woven throughout the Bible. But this is the announcement of the gospel fulfillment of the coming of the one who is the substance of the gospel, the basis for our surety that we could be right with God, Jesus. So the gospel is announced. The gospel was not announced to the high and the mighty, as we might think they would be. it would be. Verse 8. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping their watch over flock by night. Shepherds were the lowly. They were the despised, the unimportant. Uh, they were not received by the rest of society well at all. They were dirty. They smelled. They lived that life for a reason. And to these, verse 9, an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Now, we've seen this before, haven't we? It doesn't say it's Gabriel this time, but an angel appears to them. And like we would expect, they were filled with great fear. I imagine that shepherds saw a lot of stuff in the wilderness, a lot of stuff at dark, or thought they saw a lot of stuff. But there was no mistaking what they were all seeing now. And they were filled with great fear. It's a beautiful picture that the gospel, the announcement of gospel fulfillment comes to the nobodies first. You know, most people on earth are nobodies. We're more nobody than we admit. It should give us great courage that God would speak this message, this age-old, centuries-long message that he'd been working, that his first announcement of its fulfillment would come in this fashion. It's for every man in that respect. And I want us to notice the announcement itself. Look closely with me at verse 10 and verse 11. This is the announcement of gospel fulfillment. And I want us to pay attention to every word. Every word is, is important. The angel is speaking for God and is giving specific announcement. And the angel, verse, verse 10 says, The angel said to them, Fear not, 
For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Look at all the words. Fear not. We are bound by great fear about our standing before God. Now in this context, the angels bring fear. We see that happen already twice in the first chapter. So there's no doubt the angels saying fear not with reference to the angels' presence. But all of us, when presented with God or his presence, there should be a certain fear that comes over us because we're exposed. We could fake out everybody else around us, but God knows us. And there is a certain fear that comes from that, a certain awe about that. Uh, We can be fearful about the future, our standing before God in that future, what comes next. Fear not, for for behold, I bring you good news. Good news is the next part of the announcement. Good news. It literally means God. It means it's gospel, and it literally means good news. That's what gospel means. Good news to sinners. That's the point. That's what he's going to announce. The good news is that our sins have an answer. Uh, the thing that made us fearful before God has a remedy. God will provide that remedy for our sin. Sins can be taken away. That's the good news. We don't have to stand before God in our sins and receive the punishment we know we deserve. The good news is we don't have to have that because of Christ, because of the one that's being announced. Fear not, for, I be, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. Great joy is the next uh, part of this incredible announcement. Great joy. Now, joy on its own. Don't confuse it with happiness. It's not an emotion primarily. It can involve happiness, but not necessarily. Joy is a deep-seated contentment or settledness about one standing before God. And it makes no difference what's happening around us. It's something we just know is true at the core of our being, and it gives us a sense of peace. That's what joy is here. It's unshakable even despite bad outward circumstances. And everybody will have bad outward circumstances. And as we get older, they get worse. But joy is something that we gain because of the good news, and it holds us steady. Good news brings joy. Joy is rooted in the eternal, not tied to the temporary. But back to the announcement. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people, for unto you. So he's talking to the shepherds. This message will be for all the people, for unto you is born this day. Very personal now, but yet it means something widespread as well. The message of the gospel was not limited to just those who heard the first announcement of it here. The message of the gospel wasn't even limited to the Israelites or the Jews alone. By virtue of its connection to God's covenant commitment to send Jesus through Abraham's seed to be a blessing to the whole world, the message of the gospel was the culmination of God's age-old plan to bring the nations through Christ. The message of the gospel is for everyone, And the benefit of the gospel, the forgiveness of sins, is for everyone who believes on Christ. The message was given to the lowest of the low first. And look what the angel says. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. In the city of David, we already touched on this a bit with Bethlehem, but even for a shepherd in Israel, they would know the long promise, that murmuring among the Jews, that someday we'll have our king. Someday we'll have our David. 
It says in our scriptures that there will be a king that sits on David's throne. And now the angels are saying, this is that king. And he's a better king than the Jews were looking for. This is the Messiah king. That's the significance of this part of the announcement, that this baby would be born in the city of David. A a city that has no real significance as it relates to the rest of the world. Back to the announcement, verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. This tells us something about this king, the work that this king will do. It should remind all of us who've been working through Isaiah together for a couple years this ongoing buildup of the picture of the servant of God who will be the Savior also. He'll, he'll wear many hats proverbially. There'll be many things that he accomplishes. But Savior is the most important personally for us. Salvation from our sin, that's the great benefit of Jesus' incarnation and his work. He's the one who takes away our guilt. He saves us. He takes away our shame. He saves us from that shame. He substitutes himself and receives the punishment we deserve. He's our Savior. But it also says, born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ. This is to pinpoint exactly what this baby was going to do, who this baby was, Christ. It's the Greek word for anointed. It's the Greek word for Messiah. Messiah means the anointed one. The Messiah is the great faithful servant forecasted in the Old Testament, the one who would come on behalf of his people to pay for the sins of his people, to liberate his people from their sins and ultimately liberate us from all oppressions. That's the ultimate goal that God works towards and eventually will accomplish. God's servant, the anointed one, our Messiah, Christ. Christ isn't his last name, it's his title. In fact, the portion of Messiah, the Handel's Messiah, um, that speaks to this very pointedly, you probably catch it at the very beginning of that great oratorio. It comes from Revelation 11. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, his anointed one, his Messiah, the Savior. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ, the Lord. The last part of this announcement, the Lord. Lord means sovereign one. Lord means ruler. This is only assigned to God himself. And this Messiah is called God. Lord means potentate, master. This is the first announcement of gospel fulfillment that we have. And the angels give it to the shepherds first. They witness this announcement and they are moved to action. The announcement of the gospel, I don't care when it happens, how it happened before this time, it happens at this moment, and when it happens now, even today, when we hear the message again of the gospel, we walk through the little parts of it, it should spark activity. It should spark something. Something should happen to us. We should never get so full of it or so hearing it so much that we're just sick. We should never feel that way about the gospel. It doesn't matter how long you've been a believer. It should be fresh every time when you really contemplate its parts, what has been done for us. It sparks activity. And so we see in the passage that we're all familiar with how it sparks this kind of activity. And I'd suggest it's a good challenge for us to consider how, when you hear the gospel announced afresh, how does it move you? What do you do as a result of what you have heard? Let's look at the passage a little more closely, starting at verse 8 now. We've already read the bulk of this passage. Look at verse 12. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. 
So they've heard the message of the gospel. They've heard it announced. They've heard the baby is coming, what the baby's going to do. They grasped what the angels were declaring. They understood it. They comprehended the good news. They got the plan. They get what God was saying. And in order to cement the hearing of the gospel, an amazing thing happens. Verse 13, after the angel makes the announcement, gives the details of the content of the gospel, then verse 13, suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When you hear the gospel, something sets that gives you uh, praise towards God. Maybe you remember the first time it registered with you, when the Holy Spirit opened your eyes and you believed. You heard the gospel maybe before, but it didn't sink in. Now you get it. You hear it. And it's as if angels would sing to say this is true, to confirm the hearing of the gospel. I hope that every time an old believer hears the gospel, there's another sense of the angels confirming in your mind and heart, this is true. No matter how bad my week is, how bad my life has been lately, I hear this gospel again, and the angels go off again in your mind, saying, this is true. We hear this message, and then we are moved. We are gripped, and it sparks activity. Notice what happens. Hearing the gospel, the shepherds go to search for the fulfillment, the truth of the thing. Look at verse 15. When the angels went away from them to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. Uh, Maybe they had some other people uh, that they could call over and watch their sheep. I doubt they just abandoned their sheep. But the shepherds had responsibilities. Um, They had, with haste it says, uh, to get over and see this thing. They wanted to search the truth of the gospel that had been announced to them. It was so compelling, so life-impacting, that they left their sustenance for the time to go find what was announced. The Lord made known to them this gospel, so they went searching for it. God's revelation in our lives today, the exposure to the truth, that's his word. That's what we have. He proclaims his truth to us, and we have his word. And so it's for us to continue to search it. We believe it's true, but we search it out. We study it to, to test everything by it. We should never be satisfied in this life to stop searching, stop studying, stop examining, reading, considering, humbling, just putting ourselves before God, saying, we don't understand it all. In that searching process, primarily through the scriptures, that's when we gain more and more clarity and spiritual sight. That's when our clarity and our sight becomes all the more active and careful. Verse 17 When they saw it, so they searched out, they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. When we search, and we're searching God's truth, we'll see clearer. We'll see see what God has for us to know and learn. He illuminates our minds so that we can understand. The more you're exposed to the gospel, the clearer it becomes. That's why it never gets old. There's new angles on it. It's like a diamond. You can hold it different angles. It looks pretty at every angle. That's how the gospel is. Because Jesus is the, the center and the core of the gospel. And he never, gets, he never gets old. He's always beautiful. And that's what happens. We start to see clearly. We begin seeing. We see everything through the lens of, the lens of God and Christ. And when you search, you will see. Are you searching God's word? 
Are you lacking clarity about life and perspective? You'll gain sight and clarity as you search the scriptures. You'll start to see. Everyone is spiritually blind until they're born again. You know, the promise of Messiah is he restore the sight of the blind. When he actually came and restored the sight of people who are physically blind, that was all meant to be a picture of fulfillment, that he is the Messiah, and he's come to do something greater than this physical healing. He is going to restore sight to those who are spiritually blind. You'll see when you search. And then once you see it, you'll start telling about it. Look at verse 17, the second part. When they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. They were so excited, they probably recognized the shock in the face of Mary and Joseph and whoever were there, that these shepherds came in and barged in on this amazing occasion, and they wanted to tell them why they were there, and tied everything together with the announcement that the angels gave them. And of course, Mary and Joseph, we know angels. We, we, we know what you're talking about. They knew what they were fellowshipping over this common experience they had again, like we've seen already. And they praise the Lord together over it, and they want to tell people about it. They just want to tell what has happened. Now, few of us here will be great, effective evangelists, where masses of people come to Christ because of the way we tell the gospel. But all of us, when we're gripped by it, when we can see clearly, and we know it's true, it starts to make us less embarrassed about letting people know what's in our heart. Uh, we don't care if they think we're, we're you know, Jesus freaks or born-agains. We just want to tell them how they could be right with God through Christ. And it doesn't really matter what they think of us because we care enough to let them know there's a way they could have freedom too. And so that's the beauty of grasping the gospel, searching it, seeing it clear. You become confident. I've got to tell somebody. I might not tell it perfect. I won't say it just the right way, but I'm, I've got to tell somebody. And that's what you have evidenced. And if these shepherds can do it, we can do it too. And God will give us many chances. Now, when people are exposed to this gospel, there's something else that occurs, and you see it in the response here. The people who are watching this all unfold, verse 18. When people are exposed to the gospel, it evokes wonderment, wondering. Questions are asked. 18, verse 18. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. Now, I think the first thing they wondered is, how can we trust these shepherds? These shepherds are saying this message? But here's the thing. When you tell somebody, they probably think the same thing. Tony, he thinks he knows the gospel? But then when they think about it, wait a minute, what's he just, what is he saying? He's saying that God announced that this Christ would be born, this Christ is the anointed one, who is the Savior. It starts to register with what everybody's common experience is. We need salvation. We know it. We know we're lost. It starts to make us wonder. It starts to make us ask questions. We start to, how could this all be chance? How could 700 years before there be such a, a clear prophecy? And I know there's really smart people with multiple PhDs after their name that spend their life trying to deconstruct this, and, they, and you, no one knows their names. We're still reading this text. We still have manuscripts that date back. I mean, those things are in line. When you start putting it in line, it starts to make you wonder, this has got, this is something to this. Could God really have done this? Could this include me? Is this message for me? Is this what it takes to be right with God? Is this all? What do I do? This is amazing. Wonderment. When the gospel is embraced, we'll also find something else in verse 19, exemplified by Mary. Not identical. Our experience won't be just like hers, but look what it says. 
But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. She treasured them. Now, treasuring means she valued them. She saw them as valuable and, and put a certain, uh, a certain safety around them. She paused and reflected and really valued and celebrated them. That's what treasuring something, to look at and recognize it for its value and pausing for a moment. Now, no one will experience exactly what Mary did, that's for sure. But I don't have to experience what Mary experienced to know the full joy of having my sins forgiven. Because I know personally what that means, and I treasure that. And I want you to sometime in the next couple days, while you're enjoying your time with your family and your friends, which you should, kick back somewhere in your living room, wherever. If you've got a fire going, that's all the better. What a beautiful atmosphere we have out your window to see. But pause and treasure up that which Christ has purchased for you in salvation and has given you in relationships. And even though you may be going through some really rough stuff, you are secure for eternity. And this life we live is the tip of a top of an iceberg of all existence. And though we suffer for a little time in it, we'll, we'll know him for all of it. And you can, in that time frame, treasure that reality. And Mary certainly had much to ponder, and we see she does. But she's pausing to treasure all that has come to pass. Everything we have record of in the scriptures as we read it, contemplating what? The value and the worth of Christ ultimately. When the gospel is embraced, we'll find ourselves treasuring it above all else. It is the pearl of great price. But the gospel never gets old in this light, and it always provokes something else, pondering. The second part of verse 19. Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. That's something more than treasuring. Treasuring is the value of it, the celebrating of it, kind of sitting back and absorbing it a bit. Pondering is now contemplating all of its ramifications, all the ways in which this message will impact my life now and going forward. For Mary, this had to have been difficult. It's at this point she's starting to put together the difficulties of life. I mean, being, having the birth happen the way it is was part of just, I think, preparing her for all the difficulties that there would be in raising Jesus uh, for 30 years, essentially, until he would enter his public ministry and fulfill the thing that he'd come to do. She had to ponder those things. She was a woman of God who knew the scriptures and had to put these things together over the course of her life. Imagine how she studied Isaiah after giving birth to Christ pondering these things. When you reflect on your life, ask yourself, how should the good news of the gospel that we say we believe, that I say I believe, how should that shape my life today and how will it shape it in the future? What's my view of things? Finally, I want you to see in verse 20, the end result of God's saving work. It's a theme we come to often in scripture. You should know it well. What is the final end goal of coming to know Christ, know his gospel, embracing his gospel, seeing clearly, it's praising him. It, it's, that's the point. You know, God saves us. There's a lot of benefits to salvation. But the ultimate benefit is that we now return to our pre-fall state of praise and worship, even improved because it's in Christ. Hard to even understand and wrap our minds around it. But we're returned to that place of beautiful um, harmony with God because sin is no longer in the way clothed in the righteousness of Christ, so now we can praise him just by our existence now. As he's redeemed us, we praise him. That's the ultimate result of the good news. It places us right back with God where we should be, but even better. And the shepherds return, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. This is an amazing thing. They didn't quit their jobs and go become preachers. They didn't go to monasteries. They went back to being shepherds. But what's the difference? 
they went back glorifying and praising God. So go back to whatever you got to do after vacation's over, but go back glorifying and praising God in whatever God's placed you in. That's, that's what he does when he redeems us. He makes us agents of his glory because of the way we now carry that gospel to all the places we go. These shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen. That's the life of the person who grasps, grasps the gospel. I love how uh, J.C. Ryle, who I've been referring to throughout this series, um, his comments in the Gospel of Luke are tremendous. I'll close with something he says about the shepherds that encourages all of us. Ryle says, We see in them no doubts or questionings or hesitation. Strange and improbable as the tidings might seem, they at once act upon them. They went to Bethlehem in haste. They found everything exactly as it had been told them. Their simple faith received a rich reward. They had the mighty privilege of being the first of all mankind after Mary and Joseph who saw the newborn Messiah with believing eyes. They soon returned glorifying and praising God for what they had seen. And Ryle says to us, to the congregation, may our spirit be like theirs. May we ever believe implicitly, act promptly, and wait for nothing. When the path of duty is clear, so doing, we shall have a reward like that of the shepherds. The journey that is begun in faith will generally end in praise. There is one more thing, though. I was thinking back to the very first verse. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus, the great Octavius, deemed son of God. Even people in Rome today still think there's some eternal significance to Rome and will point to his broken, that's the irony, his broken statue in those days. Caesar didn't think anything about Jesus, I'm sure. But you catch what's so ironic about it? When did he reign? How is he known for his reign? He reigned 27 years before Christ's birth. And his reign stopped 27 years after whose birth? Christ's birth. We identify this mighty emperor based on where his minuscule life falls in relation to Christ. Who's God? Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful for this great story that has been preserved for us by your Holy Spirit and your word for Luke's particular rendering of it. We thank you for all of the gospel's accounts giving us the full picture of our Lord Jesus Lord, I pray that you would impress upon our hearts the gospel once again, and I pray for anybody who doesn't yet know you or how to be right with you, that that you would regenerate them. Give them your spirit so they would lay hold of Christ and know that Jesus is the way they can be right with you and they would rest in you, that they would lay their burdens down and trust in the finished work of Christ for them. Not worry about all other things, but just about how they can be right with you at this moment by believing upon Christ and his work. Thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's respond by singing another one of these many beautiful Christmas Advent-oriented hymns. 217, we'll stand and sing verses 1 through 5 of All My Heart This Night Rejoices.